Welcome to this Uvila audio presentation of The Caves of Fear by John Blaine. Volume 2, Chapter 3 Heavy Water Hartson Brandt walked swiftly to the telephone and picked it up. What's the matter, Dad? Rick asked quickly. The scientist had a strange look on his face. Give me the telegraph office, Hartson Brandt said. He put his hand over the mouthpiece. I'll tell you in a moment. I want to get a wire off immediately. He spoke into the phone again. Western Union, this is Spindrift, Brant speaking. I want to send a straight telegram. Yes, to Stephen Ames. Rick gasped. Stephen Ames was the young intelligence officer of Yannick, the secret Navy Army group charged with protecting the security of American government secrets. The Spindrift group of scientists had worked with Steve in solving a mystery a while back. Scotty's fingers bit into Rick's arm. Hartson Brandt gave the address. Here's the message. Have reconsidered your request basis of new information just received here. Urge you to come or phone at once. That's it. Sign it Brandt Spindrift. Yes, charge it to this number. He waited until the telegraph office had read back the message, then hung up and turned to the waiting group. Three days ago, I had a phone call from Steve Ames. He asked if I could undertake a special job for the government that would require me to go overseas at once for an indefinite time. I was forced to decline because obviously I can't leave now with these staff changes about to take place. The scientist knocked the ashes out of his pipe. His face was thoughtful. Steve wouldn't take no for an answer. He insisted the job was of the utmost importance, and he added that it concerned an old college chum of mine. He paused. His name is Carl Bradley. Rick's eyes met Scotty's. He said it was an urgent job, but that he would give me a few days to think it over to see if I couldn't rearrange my affairs in some way. I assured him it was no use. I couldn't possibly leave but he said to take until Saturday to consider it. That's tomorrow. Rick whistled. Some timing. It's a lot more than mere coincidence. But I don't know any more about it than what I've told you. Who was Carl Bradley? Weiss asked. Surprised you haven't heard of him, Julius. He has a considerable reputation as an ethnologist. He and Paul Warren and I were in school together. We lost track of him for a while. Then he wrote from China. He had spent several years inland living with the Chinese as one of them. He produced some immensely valuable studies. Those and his rather remarkable ability to speak and act like a Chinese earned him the nickname Chinese Bradley. He had lived most of his life since school in one part of Asia or another. 
but I'm sure I can't guess what his connection is with this special job of Steve's or how he happened to become Chada's boss. Or why he's missing, Barbie added. The cable had created a mystery that demanded a solution, but no amount of discussion answered the questions it raised. Finally, Mrs. Brandt broke up the debate by pointedly remarking on the lateness of the hour. Reluctantly, the family started for bed. As Rick undressed, he continued the discussion through the door connecting his room and Scotty's. Chada's pretty sure we'll hurry to Hong Kong. Well, is he wrong? Scotty demanded. I don't know. Depends on a lot of things. We can't go unless we get jobs. Steve evidently didn't say anything to Dad about the rest of the staff, including us. Dad hasn't even said he'll go, Scotty reminded him. Doesn't saying he has reconsidered mean that he'll go? Could be, or maybe he's just willing to talk about it some more. We should have pinned him down. We will, in the morning. Rick lay awake for long hours, staring into the darkness and trying to piece together Chada's references to a golden mouse, a Chinese with a glass eye, and a long shadow. It was no use, though. There was no mistaking the urgency of his friend's plea. Where was Chada now? And I guess somewhere between Singapore and Hong Kong. But whether by land or sea or air, Rick couldn't imagine nor could he even venture a wild guess at what kind of danger Chada was facing. After a long time, he fell asleep, but it was a fitful sleep, broken by frequent awakenings. In the morning, the discussion resumed over breakfast, bringing forth wild speculation from Barbie. Rick had to grin her flights of fancy. One thing seemed sure, Scotty offered. Chada was in one big hurry. What makes you think so? Mrs. Brandt asked. Barbie, please stop feeding Dismal at the table. Dismal turned beseeching eyes to Rick in a plea for moral support, but his young master was listening to Scotty. It was the words he used, like putting together an atomic symbol and Russian money to make troubles, and using umbra instead of shadow. I'm sure in a big book like the World Almanac, troubles and shadow are mentioned somewhere but he didn't have time to search. He took the first possibilities that came along. Rick nodded approval. That figures. But why didn't he have time? Scotty shrugged. Your guess is good as mine. Maybe better. Julius Weiss, who had tired of the discussion and started to the lab, ran back into the house. There's a plane heading this way, he announced. I'm sure it's coming here because it's very low. The conversation ended abruptly. Rick and Scotty were the first out on the lawn. The engine noise of the plane was loud. Rick saw it first, a sleek four-place cabin job, circling wide out over the water, losing altitude. In a few moments, it banked sharply behind the lab building, straightened out, and cut the gun. Rick was running toward the end of the grass strip even before the plane settled smoothly on the ground. I'll bet it's Steve Ames, he said to himself. And sure enough, he was right. Steve was the first one out of the plane. Then Rick saw that he was only the passenger. The pilot got out then, and Rick recognized him as one of the Yannick operatives who had chased the whispering box gang across Washington. Steve and Rick shook hands, grinning at each other. Then Rick greeted Mike, the pilot. 
I didn't think we'd be needing Spindrift again so soon, Steve said. He walked to meet the others and shook hands all around. Let's get busy, he said to Hartson Brandt. Rick, Scotty, and Barbie followed the two into the library. Mrs. Brandt took the pilot into the dining room for coffee, while Professor Weiss excused himself and went out to the laboratory. His apparent lack of interest would have amazed anybody who didn't know him, but Rick knew that Julius Weiss was wrapped up in one of his theoretical math problems. Nothing else on earth could find room in his mind at the moment. Steve looked at the scientist. What caused you to reconsider? This. Hartson Brandt handed him the translation of Chata's cable and then the original. We broke the code last night. It was a book code using the World Almanac. Chata knew we'd be able to puzzle it out. Steve scanned the number groups briefly. Clever, he commented. He read through the clear copy twice and then his jaw tightened. This explains something that has me puzzled. Good thing, Rick said, because all we got was the puzzlement. No explanations. Steve tapped the cable thoughtfully. I hate to ask you to tackle this problem, but you must have some idea about it or you wouldn't have sent that wire. Hartson Brandt nodded. I explained my situation to you on the phone when you called a few days ago. That hasn't changed. But I have to admit this cable from Chada puts a new light on the matter. That boy is a member of the family. Then you'll go. I don't want to, quite frankly. I will if there's no other choice or alternative. I lost a lot of sleep last night making that decision, but first I want to propose some member of my staff go in my stead. Steve walked to the desk and perched on his edge. Which one? You know them all. You also know their specialties. Which of them would fit your requirements best? Zircon. He's a nuclear physicist. Rick held his breath. Steve was continuing. Chad urges Rick and Scotty to get jobs, too. I hadn't considered that, but it's not a bad idea. Rick closed his eyes and let out his breath in a sigh of relief. Scotty nudged him. Hartson Brandt asked, Then you will consider Zircon as my substitute. Always on the condition that he'll go, of course. Steve nodded. I'd prefer you, but I'll take Zircon if I can make a condition of my own. And that is that you'll fly to the Far East at a moment's notice if he and the boys can't handle it. Rick looked at his father anxiously. Hudson Brandt had not given his permission for them to make a trip, but evidently it was all right. The scientist nodded. I'll agree to that. He went to the telephone and picked up the instrument. Operator, I want to place a long-distance call. Steve winked at the boys. Then, as Hartson Brandt placed the call to Zircon in New Haven, Connecticut, the Yonig man said, Going to be a couple of tourists at government expense, huh? Pretty soft. Maybe, Rick said, grinning. But that cable doesn't sound like anything soft to me. Steve got serious. You two prove yourselves in Washington, so as far as I'm concerned, you could make yourselves useful. And you provide a good cover for Zircon. What kind of cover? Barbie asked. Steve smiled at her. I've been told that women can't keep secrets. I can, Barbie retorted swiftly. Steve held up his hand for silence. Hartson Brandt had Zircon on the line. The scientist outlined Steve's proposal in a few words and gave Zircon the contents of Chada's cable. Then he listened to Zircon while Rick fidgeted anxiously. Finally, Hartson Brandt said, 
All right, Hobart. Tell your people up there that I'll take your lectures. I'll see you later today. He hung up and nodded at Steve. Hobart had lectures scheduled for the next week, but I can take them for him. He'll be down this afternoon and says he'll be ready to leave in the morning if necessary. Good, Steve nodded at Barbie. Even if you can't go on the trip, you can make yourself useful. Want a place to call to Washington for me? Sure, said Barbie eagerly. Where to? Steve gave her the number. Then while she was placing the call, he said, Now I'll tell you what I know. Rick's heart beat faster. Now he would learn what was behind Chada's cable. Day before I phoned here, Steve began, my office received a message from Carl Bradley. It was a top-secret message sent to us via the American Consultant General's channels from Singapore. I'd better explain first that Carl is a Yannick man. His knowledge of that part of the world has made him invaluable, and he works for us secretly while doing his routine work as an ethnologist. That is top-secret information that must never be repeated outside this room, or you'll put his life in danger. You can depend on us, Arson Brent assured him. I know. To go on. His job is gathering information about persons who show too much interest in operations within our embassies and consulates. However, the cable we got from him wasn't quite in that line. Steve paused to see how Barbie was getting along. She was trying to listen to him and the operator at the same time. This cable, Steve continued, said he had accidentally made a discovery of something potentially dangerous to the U.S., he asked for a competent nuclear physicist, and he named you, Hartson, to be sent to Singapore at once to check on his findings and to locate, if possible, the source of the stuff he had discovered. We haven't heard from him since. From Chada's cable, it's evident that something has happened to him. And on the basis of the cable, I think we'll send Zircon and you boys to Hong Kong first. Scotty put into words the question that was in Rick's mind. What was it that he discovered? Steve's lips tightened, and then he said, Heavy Water. Chapter 4. Project X. Heavy Water, Hartson Brandt exclaimed softly. Rick and Scotty looked at each other blankly and shrugged. At that moment, Barbie completed the connection and called to Steve. He strode to the phone and picked it up. Who's this? All right, Steve Ames here. Take down these names. Hobart Zircon, Richard Brandt, Donald Scott. You'll find full data on them in the files. Prepare travel orders and get tickets for all three to Hong Kong via the first plane leaving New York after 7 p.m. tomorrow night. Arrange for a letter of credit in the usual amount on the National City Bank of Washington and have the bank make arrangements with all their Far East branches. Put all three on the payroll at the same grades they held before. Get passports for them with visitors' visas for the Philippines, Hong Kong, Indochina, Indonesia, Siam, and China. We don't know where they'll end up. Then put all that stuff in an envelope and get it to me here at Spindrift by special messenger. Wait, never mind that. I'll send Mike right back and he can bring it to me. Now read those instructions back. Steve listened for a moment. Right, get going. What? Oh, charge the whole thing to a new case file. Mark it Project X. He disconnected and turned to the group. 
Now, he said grimly, let's talk turkey. He nodded at Rick and Scotty. Sircon said he could leave in the morning if necessary. That's rushing you a little too much. So I've given you until tomorrow night. Rick grinned. Once things started to move with Steve Ames, they moved strictly jet-propelled. What are we supposed to do? Scotty asked. Find Bradley, if you can, but don't spend too much time searching. Getting all the dope, and I mean all of it, on that heavy water is the reason for your going out there. If you find Bradley, he can help. Maybe Chada can help, too. But never forget for a minute that tracking down that heavy water is your mission. If we don't find Bradley, we won't know how to get started, Rick pointed out. Steve grunted. No, if I believed that, I'd have gone somewhere else for help. I came here because I knew Spindrift could give me the ingenuity as well as the scientific knowledge. And you hadn't better let me down. We won't let you down, Scotty assured him. Barbie chimed in indignantly. Of course they won't, Steve smiled. Don't worry, I'm not afraid of their falling down on the job, but it's a big one. I'll tell Zircon this when he comes, but you can be thinking it over in the meantime. You're to find out who is bringing heavy water to the Asia coast and what they're doing with it. You're to find out where it comes from and why it's being made. You're to get samples and send them back here. Most important of all, you're to locate and pinpoint for us any industrial plants you find. Scotty scratched his head. Fine. Only let's get back to the beginning. Can you tell me what heavy water is and why you're so excited about it? I don't know either, Barbie added. Hartson Brandt looked at his son. You do, don't you, Rick? I know what it is, but I don't know why it's so important to Steve, Rick said. He had read a great deal about heavy water and studying elementary physics. It had many uses in physics experiments. Let's see how much you know, Steve directed. Sound off. Rick searched his memory, trying to marshal all the facts he knew. Well, ordinary water is composed of oxygen and hydrogen. In every water molecule, there are two atoms of hydrogen and one of oxygen. The important part of what we're talking about here are the hydrogen atoms. Hydrogen is the lightest element, and it has the simplest atom. Just one proton and one electron. He looked at his father, waiting for a nod to tell him he was on the right track. When the scientist nodded his approval, he went on. That kind of hydrogen atom has a mass of one, as the scientists say. But there are other kinds of hydrogen atoms, and they're pretty rare, called isotopes. An isotope is just a different variety of the ordinary kind of atom in each element. The thing that makes it different is the change in the nucleus. Um, hydrogen has two isotopes. One kind, which has a mass of two, is found in nature, and that's called deuterium. The nucleus is called a deuteron. And another kind, which can be made in a nuclear reactor, is called tritium. A little of it is found naturally, but not enough to count for much. He took a deep breath. I hope I know what I'm talking about here. You're doing fine, Hartson Brandt said. Go on. All right, well, heavy water is made of one atom of oxygen plus two atoms of deuterium, which is the first isotope of hydrogen. 
In chemistry, there's no difference in the way heavy water acts. You can even drink it. In fact, people do drink it every day because in ordinary water, there's some heavy water. I forget what the exact figure is, but I think that by weight, there are about 5,000 parts of ordinary hydrogen in water to one part deuterium. That's right. Steve Ames nodded. 5,000 to one. Now, tell us what is peculiar about isotopes. Rick thought furiously and came up with what he hoped was the answer. I, I think that isotopes aren't as stable as the basic elements. I think some are pretty stable, but some are shaky. That's why some of the isotopes of uranium can be split wide open in a chain reaction to make an atomic bomb. And a chill ran through him and his mouth opened. And then he suddenly knew. He knew why heavy water had Steve Ames all excited and he choked. Hydrogen bombs? Scotty and Barbie gasped. Steve Ames and Hartz and Brandt smiled. It's true that one of the possibilities in building a hydrogen bomb concerns deuterium, the scientist said, but I scarcely think that's the case here. How about it, Steve? It's possible, but pretty improbable, Steve agreed. What I'm interested in is a use for heavy water Rick hasn't mentioned. Do you know what a nuclear reactor is, Rick? Rick nodded. It's what the newspapers usually call an atomic pile. We have quite a few in this country. I think the Atomic Energy Commission said quite a while ago that they used a nuclear reactor with uranium as a fuel to make plutonium, which is the artificial element that can be used to make atomic bombs, besides uranium itself, that is. That's right. What I'm interested in is the fact that heavy water can be used as a neutron moderator in a reactor. Rick looked blank. Steve was talking way over his head. Hartson Brandt saw his son's bewilderment and explained. You've probably heard that uranium in a reactor is encased in blocks of graphite. That's just carbon, Rick. It prevents the neutrons from the uranium from simply running wild. Well, heavy water can be used for the same purpose. Exactly, Steve said. So, you see, I'm not afraid of the possibility of hydrogen bombs as much as I am of the possibility that somewhere in Asia is a nuclear reactor. Until we get international agreements on atomic weapons, we simply have to keep track of atomic developments everywhere for our own protection. There's a new country going in for atomic research, and it can build a reactor. It might also be able to build an atomic bomb. Now, don't forget, I said heavy water is a legitimate industrial product. We certainly can object to a nation's manufacturing it, and we wouldn't want to. But when it turns up in an odd corner of the world, I think we'd better find out why. If it's a peaceful reason, we'll mark it down and then forget it. If not, we'll make a report to the United Nations. Why not just report it now? Barbie asked. Good question. The answer is, we're not sure. Remember, Carl Bradley was unsure enough to ask for help. If we got up before the UN and started hollering and it turned out to be plain water, we'd look pretty foolish. I don't even know how we'd begin, Scotty muttered. How do you start a job like this? Well, you'll start by being innocent tourists. You and Rick are students on holiday with Zircon. He's going to be your uncle as guide and tutor. You'll be interested in a number of things, including hunting. 
That will give you a good excuse for barging around the country if you have to. But you won't be able to decide what you want to hunt. Steve grinned. You'll decide after you find out where you have to go. And you'd better learn about Asiatic game animals. For instance, if the trail takes you to Indonesia, you may want to hunt the hairy Sumatran rhinoceros. In the Philippines, you'll hunt the tamaru, which is a special breed of water buffalo. In China, around the coast, you can hunt tigers. In Malaya, if the trail does take you down to Singapore, you can hunt tapirs. Same for Siam. In Indochina, you can hunt tigers. Inland in China, toward the Tibetan border, you'd be better off hunting barals. That's a wonderful name, Barbie said quickly. What are those? Another name for them is blue sheep, Steve told her. They're bluish-gray, shading to white in the underparts. The horns are unusual because they curve outward from the sides of the head, then down and backward. Hartson Brandt paused in the act of filling his pipe and asked curiously, How do you know so much about Asiatic animals, Steve? Steve laughed. Because I used the same gag once myself. He started for the door. Talk it over and think up any questions you can. I won't promise to know the answers, but I'll try. I've got to get Mike started back to Washington and pick up that stuff. When he was gone, Barbie looked enviously at the two young men. My next reincarnation, I'm going to be a boy. I don't see why I couldn't go, too. A girl would make the group look even less suspicious, wouldn't it? She scanned the three faces eagerly, then sighed. Okay, I didn't think it would be of any use. Never mind, Toehead, Rick said. He always hated to see Barbie's wistful expression when he and Scotty were going somewhere. Maybe next time. Not if next time is another job like this one, Hartson Brandt disagreed. He studied his pipe stem, his forehead wrinkled thoughtfully. Not quite sure why I didn't object to Rick and Scotty going. Rick demanded swiftly, You're not going to object, are you, Dad? No, Rick. If we hadn't been on other expeditions and in some tough spots together, I probably would. I know you two are able to take care of yourselves, and so is Zircon. Only keep in mind that you may be dealing with an entirely new breed of cat here, unscrupulous men that won't hesitate to put you out of their way without a moment's hesitation. So be careful. Be very careful. Don't take risks that aren't essential to your job. And do what Zircon tells you without hesitation. He's knocked around in some pretty rough corners of the world. I don't know a man who's better equipped for this kind of job, unless it's Carl Bradley. The warning sobered Rick up even more. Apart from what his father had said, he knew it was also what the information could mean to the security of the country that had prevented the scientists from making a single objection to their going. We won't take any risks we won't have to, he promised. We'll move like we're walking on eggs, Dad. And Scotty echoed the promise. Nothing remained but to wait for Zircon and make definite plans. Steve, who had risen early in order to get to Spindrift first thing, walked out to the orchard with Dismal for company and stretched out under a tree for a nap. Rick and Scotty couldn't possibly have napped, so they went up to Rick's room and began to pack. That took little time, since they would travel by air. Scotty took his rifle out of his protective case and cleaned it, then tried on the infrared telescope. He removed from the scope the masking bits of cardboard Rick had used to convert it to a camera viewfinder, 
thus making it a telescopic rifle sight once more, and it fit perfectly. You taking the movie camera along? he asked. Rick thought it over. Yes, I will, he said finally. Tourists are supposed to have cameras. I'll take the movie instead of the speed graphic, and I can take along infrared film as well as regular color film. If anybody asks, I can say I want movies of animals you and Zircon shoot. Then all three of us won't have to take guns. Better finish putting the lenses into those sunglass frames then. I'll do it right now. It won't take long. A thought struck Rick. What is Zircon going to do for a rifle? He'll borrow one. An ordinary one won't do either. If we're supposed to be hunting big game, he's going to need something bigger than my three hundred three. Scotty frowned thoughtfully. How about Captain Douglas? He used to be quite a hunter. You've seen the African trophies in his office at the barracks. Captain Douglas was the commanding officer of the Whiteside State Police Barracks and a good friend of the boys. He and his officers had cooperated with them in rounding up a group of smugglers. Give him a phone call while I finish putting these lenses in, Rick suggested. That's a good idea. Scotty went to the phone. More and more Rick was realizing the magnitude of the job they had undertaken. He hoped fervently that Chato would know something useful in case they failed to locate Bradley. In a moment, Scotty stuck his head in the door. Got the captain on the phone. He's got a forty-five ninety we can borrow, and bless his heart, he didn't ask me where we were going. When can we pick it up? Rick thought it over. I'll have to fly to the airport and pick up Zircon in a little while. Tell Captain Douglas I'll buzz the barracks on the way over. Ask if he can possibly deliver it to me at the airport. I hate to bother him, but I won't have a car to go get it. Rick's little cub airplane was Alan's fast messenger passenger service. All right. Scotty disappeared down the hall again for a few moments and then returned. He took a seat in the leather armchair. He finally did get curious, wanted to know if we needed that caliber of rifle to shoot Jersey mosquitoes. I told him we were going on a trip and that I couldn't say anything more about it. So he said he'd lend us the gun only on the condition that we'd tell him the story when we got back. I said we would if we could. Yeah, he's the best, Rick replied. But he knows we've done some hush-hush work for the government. And don't forget he's an ex-marine. He wouldn't embarrass us by asking too many questions. Scotty nodded. Wait until you see his rifle. A forty-five ninety is a regular cannon. It'll knock down anything smaller than an elephant. And it'll knock down one of those if you hit the right spot. That's just Zircon's size, Rick said, grinning. The scientist was a huge man who towered over the rest of the staff. Later, Zircon dominated the library as Steve issued the final instructions. The scientist's booming voice had phrased questions for an hour until even Steve looked weary. This winds up what I have to say, Steve told them. Mike should be back with your tickets, passports, and letter of credit in another hour. I'll go back to Washington and issue instructions via the State Department to all our ambassadors and councils in the area. They'll know what's happening and why you're there, but no one else on the staffs will. Go in to see each one whose country you enter. Make a lot of noise. Insist on seeing the chief. He'll know your names and he'll do everything he can. Bradley is supposed to check in with each embassy or consulate in the same way. They'll be your points of contact in case he shows up again. File reports when you can. Hand them to the ambassador or council of the country, and no one else. 
Steve stopped for a moment, then his warm grin flashed. This is going to be tougher than beating the Whispering Box gang, let me tell you. I know you'll come back with answers, but be sure you have whole skins when you do.